Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you asking that by your word you would revive us, that you would give life to our souls, that you would give joy to our hearts as we study your word and what it says about you, what it tells us about Christ, what it tells us about how we're supposed to live. Have your spirit in us this morning working in such a way that our hearts would be drawn to you, that our hearts would focus on you, that we would have a desire to glorify you with our lives. That what you speak to us this morning by your word would be something that would stir in each of us as we go into this week and into this new year. That your spirit would continue to remind us of your word as we go from here. Of what you tell us this morning. So help us. Help us by your spirit to have understanding and help us to have our affections moved towards you. And help our lives to change as a result of it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we're at another new year. Another moment in time where people begin with all sorts of resolutions, right? You have people who have all sorts of ideas of starting diets and types of food that they're going to eat this year, or maybe they have another kind of habit that they want to stop or that they want to start up. One famous one, right, of every year is people want to start exercising more, right? Now, some of you may have already broken your New Year's resolutions, even though it's only the second of the month. Some of you may be just saying, I'm just going to wait till Monday to start them anyway, so we're just going to have the weekend. But as we think through these things that we want to have some sort of resolution or goal of what we want to happen, of the food we put in our body or the way we exercise our bodies, I'm reminded of what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. He says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul makes it quite clear there that we can train our bodies all that we want, we can control the food we put in, the way that we exercise, but that only has some value. But what has the most value, because it holds value in this life and the life to come, is godliness. So while we begin this start of the year, and there's many churches in either our community or in the nation that are rebranding themselves, right? This is what churches often do at the beginning of the year. They rebrand themselves. We're going to have a new mission statement this year. We're going to have a new focus for this year. We're going to put forth a new logo for our church this year. And I'm not saying that any of those things are necessarily in and of themselves bad, but what I want to do is I want to call us back to what should be first and foremost central, And that's God's word. That God wants us to be people of his word. That's the means by which we actually find godliness. Which we just saw is the main goal here. God's word is sufficient to give us everything we need to live a life of godliness. 
And so what we're actually going to do is we're going to lay a foundation this morning for what's to come in the next couple weeks, which in the next couple weeks we're going to go through our church covenant, and we're going to look at the biblical basis for everything that we see in our church covenant. And at the end of those weeks, we're going to renew that covenant together as a church body. Everybody who wants to be a member of this church is going to sign this covenant and agree that these are the things we're going to commit ourselves to. But before we get into the church covenant in the coming weeks, I want us to first and foremost look at the foundation for that, which is that God calls us to be people of his word. Everything that we're going to see, everything we see in our church covenant, everything we have in our statement of faith, everything we have in our church constitution is based on God's word. So God wants us to be people of his word. And that's what I want to spend some time with this morning, is looking at a psalm that describes God's word to us. What it does for us, how we're to respond to it. And so we're going to turn to Psalm 19 for our main passage this morning, and we'll read through it together and discuss what it means for us to be people of the word. Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So you probably noticed as we were reading through that, that the first six verses, you're like, I thought we were talking about Scripture and the Word, and we're talking about creation there, right? So I call that the preface to the Word, right? Before we get into all this description of what God's Word is and what it does, we have a preface to it. In verse 1, we see what is made known about God in creation itself. We call this general revelation, right? We call Scripture special revelation, but we call what's known in creation about God general revelation. And we see here the heavens, right? That's not God's dwelling place. That's a word for the sky, the expanse of everything we see in the air, what's been, uh, what's been departed from the earth when God created everything in Genesis 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
the work of his hands, the glory of who God is, uh, can be seen in creation itself. This is a reminder of what Paul tells us in Romans 1, right? Paul tells us that two attributes specifically are known about God by looking at creation around us. Specifically, his power and his divine nature. You look at the world, whatever it is that you find to be beautiful in the world, and you can see that there is a creator of it. You look at it, and there has to be something divine that made all of this, and that divine person must be powerful enough to make it. So we find a couple truths about God as we look about creation. But then as we go moving into the other verses, we see some specific attributes of seeing God in creation. First of all, in verse 2, we see that this is a consistent thing. Right? Verse 2 says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. This is ongoing. It's going on every day and every night. You can look out in the world and creation and see the glory of God and see the work of God's hands. It's consistent. There's never a day that passes by where you can't see it. But also as we get into verse 3 and 4, we see that it's universal. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Right? So the voice, the, this glory of God goes out to everyone. Anybody in all the earth can look at creation and see that there is a gloriousness to it. There is a beauty to it. There is a creator of it. And then he gives us a very specific example of the sun, of how this is universal. In them he has set a tent for the sun, verse 4, now verse 5, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Not a day goes by when the sun doesn't pass over. Nothing is hidden from it. It comes up on one end and goes down on the other end. It goes from end to end, and it does it every single day. And the heat is felt by everyone. Though lesser in times of winter, it still nevertheless provides the heat that continues life in this world. And so it's a universal thing. Anybody in all of creation can look at creation and see the glory of God, God's handiwork in the world around us. Yet, it's still limited. It's still limited on how much we can know about God by creation only. Right? Think of it this way. My kids are in the program where they receive the books from Dolly Parton every month or every quarter or whatever, right? And so we're getting constantly new books in the mail and things like that. Now I can look at that program, this creation of Dolly Parton, and I can say, I know something to be true about her. I know she likes kids to read, and I know that she's very generous to the point that she's willing to send all this for free. But do I know Dolly Parton? Not by any means. Right? There's a very different thing between seeing something from the creation of what she's made and seeing some sort of sense of truth about who she is and what's important to her, but that doesn't tell me who she is. And it's the same way. We look at creation around us, and we can see some truths of, okay, there's a divine creator, there's someone who has power, there's someone who has glory, 
There's someone who's done this by his own hands. He's created all of this, but that doesn't tell us all of who God is. That doesn't tell us how we can know God. General revelation in the world around us is limited. So while, yes, it's a beautiful thing and a glorious thing, it's a limited thing. That's why we have to move then into verse 7, where we see we go from the preface of the word to now life in the word. Right Now we're actually talking about special revelation. Talking about, as verse 7 refers to it, the law of the Lord. Now which for David writing was all of Scripture. That's all David had was the law. Right? We see it referred to in the New Testament as the law and the prophets. Right? That was what their whole Old Testament combined was called. Now for us, it's the entire word of God. It's all of Scripture. But we move into verse 7 here, and we see, you probably saw it as we went through, there's some parallelism going on here. We see a word used to describe God's word. Here it's law, later testimony, precepts, commandment. And then we see a description of it, and then we see a result of it. So let's take a little bit of time and work through this and see what life in the Word actually looks like. First, we find out that the law of the Lord, God's Word, is perfect. Meaning it's complete. There's a wholeness to it. There's no additions necessary. It is sufficient for everything that we need. We don't need anything else beyond God's Word to live godly lives. In fact, we read out of 1 Timothy, look at 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to how Paul describes God's Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then the purpose in verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So not only does it say all of Scripture is profitable, but it tells us what it's profitable for. That is to make those who are the people of God complete. That they may live godly lives, that they may be equipped for every good work that is set before them. So it's sufficient, it's perfect, it's whole. We don't need any additions to God's Word in order to live godly lives. That doesn't mean we don't use each other. Right? Because God's word tells us to use each other. Right? That doesn't mean we don't need other people in our lives, but we only need other people in our lives first and foremost because the authoritative word of God tells us we need each other. So we see that the word of God is perfect, but then the result of it, reviving the soul. Literally meaning turns the soul back. Our souls are headed in one direction. And as we come to God's word, our souls are turned back to the place where we can truly find life. When we're walking in our lives apart from God's word, we're in a place of death. But when we come back to God's word, life is breathed into us. Now, this is only true for two instances. This is only true, first, for when we're unbelievers and we become believers, right? By the Spirit of God breathing into us, by the truth of God's Word, we become believers. And then it's only true for those who are believers. right? Nobody who's an unbeliever comes to God's Word and walks away an unbeliever and has their soul revived. That doesn't happen, right? It's only those who actually have the Spirit who breathes life into us. Think of it this way. 
when we watch movies and if someone has passed away in the movie and they're doing mouth to mouth or they're giving them chest compressions and things like that and they come back to life, what usually happens? Right? This big gasp of air. Now, I don't know how realistic that is or not, but they play it up in the movies all the time. So my question is, how many of us act that way when it comes to God's word? How many of us sense, okay, I've been apart from God's word, I'm walking in a path of really death, of something that's not good for my soul, and I come back to God's word, and it's like, it's like a gasp of breath, again, reviving our souls back to the place where we can find life. So that's the first one. Moving on in verse 7, we see the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's confirmed. It's supported. There's a certainty to God's word. We don't need to go somewhere else and find validation for God's word. God has already declared this to be his word, which means he has validated it. We don't need some expert or some scholar to tell us that we should listen to this. God already has told us we should listen to it. It's sure. It's already confirmed by him. And as a result of that, what does it do? Making wise the simple. All of us who are former fools can have the assurance that we're walking on the right path because it's a path God has already said is sure. It's a path that God has already confirmed. Right? And it's more. It's not just like getting an education. Right? Where, okay, once I knew how this, I didn't know how this works, and now I know how it works, so good. No, it's that your life actually changes as a result. Right? That you once were walking in a foolish way, and now you're walking in a way of wisdom. Right? This is why when we see celebrities who claim the name of Jesus, we often struggle to believe whether their testimony is really real or not. You have all sorts of celebrities in recent years that have claimed that they have become Christians, and yet you're asking the question of, then why are you still singing those same songs? Why is it that you're still acting in those movies and using that kind of language? Just because you went on the stage and sang one Jesus song at one of your concerts doesn't mean that all of a sudden your life has changed. Right? It's hard for us to believe that. It seems like you're still on the simple path, not on the wise path. But a life is actually changed by the testimony of the Lord that is sure. Moving on into verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right. They're straight. They're level. There's a clarity to them. There's a sense in which you can see the boundaries of life, what's inside the boundaries and what's outside of the boundaries, and it's fixed in one direction. It's straight, it's level. That's not to say that's not to say that life isn't going to be unpredictable at times. It's to say that you always know what you're supposed to do in life. You know how God calls you to respond. He doesn't tell you one day to lie and one day to tell the truth. He doesn't tell you go ahead and steal this day but not this day. You know exactly every single day what is inside the boundaries. It's straight and it's level. It's right. In 
And as a result, it rejoices the heart. Doesn't your heart rejoice knowing when you wake up every day, you have no twists and turns. God's not going to pull the string out from under you. You know exactly which direction you're supposed to head. There's a gladness that should stir up in us when we read God's Word and we see more and more with clarity the level path He has set before us, the straight path that is in front of us of how He wants us to live. Now Charles Spurgeon stops here for a moment and sees these first three descriptions as a progression. He would say that when our souls are revived, that's the moment of our conversion, When the simple are made wise, that's like our discipleship process when we grow in walking and learning what wisdom is. And now the final result in the Christian life is a rejoicing of the heart, that there's a joy that comes with it. Now you can take it or leave it, whether you agree with Spurgeon, but we can certainly see what he's saying there. Moving on in verse 8, though. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It's clean. And take that along with the next word, enlightening the eyes. God's word shines forth. There's a brightness to God's word. And much like we saw in the first verses, right, where it says that the sun warms all on the earth. God's word to all who hear it. God's word exposes all the darkness. That doesn't mean all who are exposed come to the light, but it means that it does expose all the darkness. And that's what we see as the result. It enlightens our eyes. It's like us coming from being blind to now being able to see. It's like being in a dark room where you can't see your hand in front of your face and someone turns on the switch. Right? This is what we call the work of the Holy Spirit called illumination, where he opens our eyes to see truth of who God is that maybe we weren't aware of before, or we didn't go quite as deep into before. Let me give an example of this. The preacher Paul Washer was preaching up near Alaska one day, and he was preaching to a congregation of about 15 people, he said. And all of a sudden comes this big, burly, lumberjack-looking man in, and he comes and he sits down. So Paul Washer continues preaching, sharing the gospel, finishes, and he comes down to the man, and he says, why are you here? And the man tells him, he says, well, I've lived out in the wilderness basically my entire life. At one point, I heard something about God and some man named Jesus, and today I have a paper in my hand from my doctor that tells me I have three weeks to live. And so Paul Washer says, well, did, did anything make sense to you today of what I said? He said, well, yeah, of course it made sense. Anybody sitting here could have made sense of what you said. And everything in Paul Washer wanted to say in that moment what many people want to say. Well, let's pray a prayer and you're good. You made sense of it, right? Let's go ahead and pray. Pray the sinner's prayer. You're saved. You don't have anything to worry about for the next three weeks. But he didn't feel right giving assurance without knowing fully where this man was. And so he, he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going I'm to cancel my flight for tomorrow. And I'm going to sit down and we're just going to read God's word together. And we're going to read it until either you get saved or until you die trying. 
So they sat down that night together and they started reading through God's word together, different portions. They'd stop and pray together. Paul Washer would explain it to him if he had questions. And they just worked and worked and worked their way through God's word. And finally, they get to a point and Paul Washer said, let's, let's, go, to, let's go back to John 3.16. And the man says, didn't we already read that? He said, yeah, we did, but let's just, let's go ahead and, and try to go back to it. And so this big, burly man is sitting there with, a Bible in his lap, holding it, and he says, okay, for God so loved, and he starts shaking, and he says, that's it, I have eternal life, I'm saved, I believe in Jesus, and Paul Washer looks at him and says, how do you know, and he says, haven't you ever read this verse before? You see, what happens is the work of the Holy Spirit turned on the lights. His eyes were enlightened to see who Jesus really is. What, had happened, what would have happened if Paul Washer just got on his flight and went back home? And yet here he is, this man now saved, never gave an update of what happened to that man, but he has assurance because he knows his eyes have been enlightened because... The commandment of the Lord is pure. We go on into verse 9, and we find not another word for God's word, right? We've seen law, testimony, precepts, commandment, but in verse 9 we see the product of God's word, the fear of the Lord. And we see that the fear of the Lord is clean, it's unmixed. Reminds us of what Jesus says, right? That you cannot have two masters. You, there he says you can't serve God and money, but the point is here, you can't fear both God and man. Right? You can't fear God's word and man word, man's word. You can't worship God and worship something earthly. Right? The fear here is linked to everything we've seen so far about God's word. The more we know God by his word, the more we begin to fear him. The more we grow in our awe of who he is, the more our hearts soar in worship towards him. The people of the word are the people who tremble at his word. God's people tremble at his word. And the result here is a little different as well. Enduring forever. It doesn't fade. Remember, Jesus says, my words will not pass away We should not be content that we once had some former excitement about God and his word. If our excitement has been lost, it's just some past experience to us, it's likely that it has become mixed. It's likely that maybe it's even been taken over by another fear, by another awe, by another worship, that there's some sort of idol in our life that's keeping us from the fear of the Lord we're supposed to have. And then as we continue into the last part of verse 9, we actually see two things put together. The rules of the Lord are true, they're firm, they're reliable, and they're righteous, meaning they're just. So ask yourself the question, where do you go to find truth? If you want to understand why something in the world is happening, or what the purpose is, or how you're supposed to live, any of that, if you want to find truth, what is your most reliable source? 
according to this, God's word can be depended upon like nothing else can. There's a truth to it, the truth in it. And it's not just true, it's righteous, it's just, meaning it's not unfair. If you come to God's word and you read it and you say, that's unfair, your perspective needs to be changed, not God's word. And so since we have two things here in this last one, they're true and they're righteous, we're going to skip over verse 10 and go to verse 11 because there we see the two results from them being true and righteous. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. So since God's word is true, since God's word is fair, it's just, it warns us. Anything that doesn't line up with God's word is untrue or unjust, right? It tells us who it is that we should believe, who it is that we should trust. Is what these people are saying lining up with what God tells us? Who should we follow? Well, is what they're saying line up with what God tells us? So it warns us. And then on the flip side, right, the second part, in keeping them, there is great reward, Now, we often hear reward and we jump to the future, don't we? We say, oh yeah, well as long as I obey now, there's a future reward that's waiting for me. And that's true in some sense. I'm not debating that. But notice the emphasis here. It doesn't say in keeping them, there will be great reward. It says in keeping them, there is great reward. There's a reward just in keeping God's word itself in your present life. Think of marriage. If you have a spouse who is faithful, a spouse that doesn't commit adultery, a spouse that doesn't lust, a spouse that fits within the biblical bounds of what God tells us marriage is, it's not just that, oh yeah, that spouse is going to hear well done, good and faithful servant later on. It's that you have a flourishing marriage now. And I would argue if you say, well, I have a faithful spouse, but I mean, so they don't go off with other people, yet our marriage doesn't seem to be flourishing, I would say there's probably other parts of Scripture that you're not following then. There's other things of how you're supposed to interact in a marriage that aren't being applied if you don't feel like things are flourishing. I'm not saying every marriage doesn't go through ups and downs. But I am saying that Scripture tells us exactly how we're supposed to live in a flourishing life here and now, not just some future reward. And then we skipped over verse 10, where we see this illustration for us. A description of a desire for God's word. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. When you see God's word for what it really is, you begin to crave it. That's what it says here. More to be desired than gold, money, than even the sweetest thing they could think of to eat, honey. The Spirit of God who wrote the Word and who also lives in us who believe leaps when He comes to the Word He has written. There's this desire of the Spirit inside us to actually have us read what he has written. So we desire it, or at least we should. So ask yourself the question, 
Many of us have moments in our life where we know, okay, at this time, on this day, I'm going to have 30 minutes free, 60 minutes free, a couple hours free. And we often input it with, I can't wait to blank. Right? I can't wait until I can blank with my free time. When's the last time you filled in that blank with God's word? When's the last time you said, I desire God's word so much, I can't wait to be in it? That's what's being described here in verse 10. In fact, how much do any of these describe your life? As someone who claims to be a believer of the word, how much of this describes your life? That when you come to the word, you find your soul revived. Your eyes enlightened, that you, your simple ways corrected so you can be made wise. Your heart rejoicing in these things. Does that describe your life in the word? And as we go on into the final verses, we see how David's life is reshaped by the word. We see it first in a negative way and then in a positive way. So first, the negative way in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Now that kind of sounds confusing at first, but the whole point is, who can fully understand why he fails? And that's true of all of us, isn't it? Every time we sin, there's a, there's a sense in which we can see it as sin, but there's a sense where we look at it and say, why did I do that? Who can fully discern why he does everything that he does? Because we all have, the next part of verse 12, declare me innocent from hidden faults. This doesn't mean that you have faults or sin that's hidden from the world. It means it's hidden from you. In the sense of, maybe there's parts of God's word you haven't been made aware of yet. Or maybe you've read something and you don't quite fully grasp it yet. Your eyes haven't been fully enlightened to it yet. And so you don't understand all the implications for your life. So there's certain sins that we commit that are even unknown to us. Things we're not even aware of that we're doing that is sin. And as we read God's word, that is made more known to us. But David is saying here, I know I'm not innocent, Just because I don't know that I'm sinning doesn't mean that I'm not sinning. I'm not innocent of that sin. So he's asking God to declare him innocent, to forgive him, even of the sins he's unaware of. But then he jumps in verse 13 to the sins he is aware of. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Sins that we all know are outside those boundaries. Sins that we all know when we're doing them, we're going too far further than what God has called us to go. So he requests what? Let them not have dominion over me. He doesn't want them to have any rule or reign over him. He doesn't want to fall into these sins over and over again. And the end result, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. He's asking for forgiveness. So the first reshaping that David has by going through God's word is the way he views his own sin. And think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? The less time we spend in the word, the less time we think about our sin, the less we're warned about our sin, the less we care about our sin, and the less we end up changing our sin. If I tell my kid downstairs, don't run, they may listen for a moment, but they have to be repeated, don't they? These commands have to be told again and again and again and again. 
And it's the same thing for us. We have to come back to God's word again and again and again, have our eyes enlightened, have our hearts rejoiced, our souls revived, to be reminded of how we're supposed to live. But the word goes one step further. God's word not only reveals our sin to us, but it also provides us the way to be forgiven of our sin. It's not just the boundary line, but it offers salvation for every time we go beyond that boundary line. In Christ, our sins are forgiven by his life, death, and resurrection. And also, when we trust in Christ, the power of the Spirit is given to us to live within the boundaries that we couldn't live in before. As sinners, we don't live in the boundaries, but by the power of the Spirit, as we trust in Jesus, we now can live within the boundaries. So that's the first way David is reshaped, and then the second way is in verse 14, the positive way. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, and my Redeemer. As sin is reshaped in our eyes, as we view sin as something in us and what we do, then what begins to be reshaped in us is what we want to be true of us. Not just that we see our failures, but what we want to see happen. And we see it here. Words of my mouth, that's external, isn't it? What comes out of our mouth And also, meditation of our hearts. Our whole person, our inner and outer person. Everything we do, everything we are, everything we feel. And what does he want? All of these things to be acceptable in God's sight. Or your translation might say, pleasing. Or God delights in these things. Those who have been reshaped by God's word want to please the God who gave them the word. You hear that? Those who are in God's word and are reshaped by God's word want to please the God who gave them the word. And we want to please him with everything that we are. External and internal. Our words, our actions, and our hearts. Where's that at on your resolution list for this year? I simply want to please God. So I'm calling us as a church for your last point. We'll go through it real quick here. Commit to the word. Call for us to commit ourselves together, not just this year, but forevermore to commit ourselves to being faithful to God's word. Yes, we're going to see it specifically in the coming weeks as we go through the church covenant together and what we're going to commit ourselves to in that. But also, just in our own individual lives, I have five kind of commitments or challenges for you. First, crave the word. If, you, if verse 10 that we read here of more to be desired than gold and honey, if that's not true of you, ask why. What is it in my life that I do crave that's preventing me from craving God's word? And as you crave it, number two, be in the word. Crave the word, be in the word. 
There's no excuse anymore for the world we live in for any of us to not be in the Word. Period. There are so many tools at our disposal to use. If you don't like to read, there's an audio Bible for you. I have multiple ones on my phone that you can listen to that have amazing voices that aren't just those machine-type ones anymore. Right? There's actual people who have set up entire apps that you can have voices from different countries. Right? I, have, I have two voices that I listen to on one of my apps. One is Felix who's an African fellow who reads the Bible to me. Another one's Rosie, who's from the UK, and she reads the Bible to me. Let alone the fact that I have a whole separate audio Bible written or read by Kristen Getty, who's from Ireland and has a wicked awesome accent that you just get to listen to it in. So if you don't like to just sit down and read, there's a tool for you out there. There's Bible plans downstairs for you to use. There's all sorts of Bible plans online that you can find. And I still prefer to just sit down and read it. One of my Christmas gifts this year was a reader's Bible, where basically they just take out all the verses, all the verse numbers, and they take out all the footnotes and things like that, and you basically can just read through it without wondering, where am I at in all of this? And I'll tell you, since I got it for Christmas, I've sat down and read through multiple books of the Bible in the past week where I just sit in one sitting and I read through 1 Timothy, which is six chapters, and I just sit down and read it. So there's all sorts of tools out there to be in the Word. So crave the Word, be in the Word. Number three, meditate slash memorize the Word. You know, the psalmist says in Psalm 1, right, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. So many of us come to the Word and we might read a verse or two and then we say, an hour later, I forgot what I read. That's not meditation. Meditation is something you're thinking on as you go throughout the entire day. Maybe that means you need to come back to the Bible multiple times. Maybe you need to memorize it. But it's not just meditating or memorizing for the sake of checking off the box. It's for the sake of understanding it. That as you go throughout your day, you're dwelling on understanding, what does this mean for my heart? What does this mean for my life? So crave the word, be in the word, meditate, memorize the word. Number four, pray the word. We do this every Sunday when we do our prayer time. There's a perfect example. Come to Psalm 19. Read Psalm 19 and let your prayer afterwards be this. Lord, help my soul to be revived when I come to your word. Lord, rejoice my heart whenever I read Scripture. Give me wisdom to not live the simple life, the foolish life. Lord, help me to desire your word more than anything else. Help me to keep your word in which there is great reward. Pray the words back to God. This, After all, he wrote it for us to understand. Why not pray it back to him? Or Alistair Begg. People always ask Alistair Begg, famous preacher up in Cleveland, Ohio. They always ask him, what does his sermon preparation look like? And he gives different ideas, but he says all the while, his entire time of preparing his sermon, he's praying, and he's praying this, help me, help me, Lord, help me, help me understand this, help me apply this, help me interpret this, help me, help me, help me. 
And maybe that needs to be your prayer when you come to God's word. God, help me understand this. Or maybe there's a verse of, you know, there's something you're struggling with. So the rest of your day, it's God, help me to live this. God, help me, help me. I know I can't do this on my own. So crave the word, be in the word, meditate, memorize, pray the word. Last, obey the word. And not just because you're changing your external behavior without your internal being changed, but because verse 14 is true of you. That you want the me- even the meditation of your heart to please God. May your obedience be driven by a desire to please Him. So my friends, my call for us as we enter this new year is not to rebrand ourselves as a church, but to recommit to what we've already said we would commit ourselves to. To be people of the Word. I want each of us in this church to not only say amen to what we read this morning in Scripture, but to actually live like we believe this is true. That this word actually does revive our souls, rejoice our hearts, opens our eyes, makes us wise, keeps us from sin, gives us rewards. It leads us to live lives that are pleasing to God, even in the depths of the meditations of our own hearts. Not because the end goal is the word itself, but because by this word we come to know the one who wrote this word. That God himself, our rock, our firm foundation, and our redeemer, the one who saves us, that's what we're committing ourselves to. When we commit ourselves to the word, we're committing ourselves to pleasing God. And we're only going to please him based on how much we're aligning ourselves with what he's already told us. So my hope for us as we go into this series on the church covenant and we go into this year together and many years to come is that we would commit ourselves this morning and commit ourselves forevermore to be people of the word. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, help us. In the midst of the busyness of life, in the midst of the draw to entertainment and other kinds of pleasure in this world, there, there's all sorts of things to distract us from who you are and what you say in your word. Help us. Convict us of the sin in our lives that prevents us from reading your word. Help us to commit ourselves yet again and stick with the commitment by the power of your Spirit working in us. Commit ourselves to being in your Word. By your Spirit, help us to crave your Word. Help us to meditate on it as we go throughout our lives. Help it to be the substance of our prayers back to you. And help us to live in obedience to it. Father, this is the basis for everything. We know this. We know this is your word to us. There's nothing like it in this world. May we treat it as such. May we treat your word as an actual word from our God, our rock and our redeemer back to us. That we might know you more and live in a way that pleases you. Help us to do this. We ask all this in Jesus' name.
Amen. We're going to close our time together with uh, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And I want to end that. We're going to end the entire thing with verse 3 that begins with, My heart is leaning on the word.